My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel Scheffler, and I have some strong feelings about travel. This is everywhere. Today's travel commandment, thou shalt put yourself in the way of magic. So it turns out that tea is the number one consumed beverage on the planet. Who knew? Apparently water just doesn't count. Well, tea for me, the Brit Euro South African that I am, is the hunk essence of my multiculture, passed from my European grandmother, who served a very formal tea every day for her entire life. Bless her. She nearly made that century mark. Well, Booby always served tea with a freshly baked set of tarts, cakes, or cookies, all with a sort of ever-evolving theme. Over tea, Booby and I traveled to Sri Lanka for lyrical sweets and spices I'd never heard of. Or we were off to Brazil for gooey, cheesy bites called Paoja de Queijo. And then sometimes we were traveling to Persia for chickpea cookies with pistachio. She understood that spice and all things nice was just the way to her grandson's heart. So it would make sense that I had been teaching my very American husband all about beauty, and especially the ritual of tea. He came from a home where tea was made in a microwave with a very sad tea bag from the grocery store. Or it was served very iced and from a supermarket bottle. In fact, I think I once overheard his Italian family say that green tea was only drunk before a colonoscopy. So now at four o'clock every day without fail, our body clocks flick a switch. Ring, ring, it's tea time, darling. And if you think about it, tea makes so much sense. It's long after lunch, dinner feels very far away, and dinner seems like a huge commitment. So tea it is. When I came out to mother, when I was at high school, her response was, not a problem, dear, let's have some tea. And when I was doing too many drugs and parting my head off in Ibiza, and therefore at some point I had to let mother know that I had a substance abuse issue, her response was rather the same. Not a worry, we'll turn the kettle on for some tea. Even when I broke the news that I would be moving to America, she ever casually just rung for some more tea. So many of my earliest travel memories were made alongside tea. From special island black tea in Mauritius to fancy potpourri teas in London. Take for instance Cape Town, where I lived as an adult and holidayed yearly for most of my life, with and without the family. Picture it. 1990, South Africa. Nelson Mandela's still in prison, and my European parents are supporting the fall of apartheid. As Paris has the Eiffel Tower and Rio de Janeiro has Ipanema Beach, Cape Town has its own icon. It's a mountain. It happens to be rather flat and looks just like a table, hence the name Table Mountain. 
and it rises as this bonfire of the southern world's tip, where two opposing oceans hug each other, one warm, one cool. You have the winelands winking from a distance, but then there is this man-made birth of the mother city, the ever-faithful pink of the Mount Nelson Hotel. And this is where afternoon tea was the occasion. In view from pretty much everywhere, the hotel's pink hues are always adapting. The grand old building was first painted pink to signify peace at the end of the First World War. And now this particular blush is formulated to fade to an idyllic shade between its frequent coats. It is a pink for your memories, one for the ages, you may say. Not quite as bright as a peony pink, almost that Jackie Kennedy pink, but really much closer to my own skin color. At age six, pink was just pink, and just as soft as the motherly pink of my travel companion, my stuffed pink panther. Or so I thought at the time, because I was just a six-year-old fool. It was one of those long, hot afternoon walks where everything sticks to your body. The sun is no longer the friendly sky queen, but the curse of the Saturday afternoon in the Cape Town Gardens. Squirrels suffer the heat, so they just stay in the trees and ignore my acorn-laden little hands. And then I see the iconic white stone columned gates where we're given our reprieve. And I know tea time is near. Moments later, we met with this meaty smell of freshly cut grass and a picnic blanket is shaken out. I watch as the exhibition of delights unfold on these great lawns of the Mount Nelson. Uniformed staff perform their ceremony and a little piece of England reveals itself. Mother's rosy hands hold her porcelain cup and saucer quietly for a pour of tea. Milk first, she always reminds whomever is within earshot. The burly silver trays show me my own reflection, as many white gloves zippily pass them around. Our silky white picnic blankets surrounded by all kinds of sweetness. A little cloud of paradise, I recall, right under these gigantic African skies. The heat is all but forgotten. I am at a Mad Hatter's tea party, and I am Alice, ready to fall down a rabbit hole and feast. A wonderland of familiar surprises. So... This is what we ate. Petite white sandwiches with crusts evenly cut off. Sickly sweet wondrous Cook Sisters, and I dare you to Google that. Oversized milk tarts with little rain flecks of cinnamon on top. Oversized pink fairy cakes that are soft to the bite. And then oozy white chocolate eclairs. There was even a mini fat cook, which a direct translation would wield fat cake. As I lie on the grass with ants climbing on and over my toes, I count nearby palm trees. My hands are sticky from the clotted cream and strawberry jam I smeared on my scone and I'm still nibbling on. I resort to doing lazy small somersaults on the picnic blanket. The great pink hotel is topsy-turvesy and upside-downsy with me and I'm right down this sugary rabbit hole and it's all curiouser and curiouser. The refilled shiny trays circle and pirouette mother. She sits ladylike on a low cane chair, her eyes smiling from under her dark glasses. 
Something about the light or the sun or just the moment of sugary beauty makes me notice my skin color against the shade of the hotel. I am just as pink as the hotel. Almost one in the same. But we're in Africa, where most people I've seen around me aren't the shade of pink. And it's in this moment, the simple, silly, garden, lawn moment, where I sit for the first time in my daft short life thinking about the color of my skin. How a hotel's paint job and a semi-formal afternoon tea could make me aware of not only my extreme privilege, but also my very pinkness. But that's exactly my elaborate relationship with tea. It's somehow always with me through the heartache, some heartbreak, those joys and the delights. It's a bringer of truths. Like after a particularly dire two years of living in Paris, falling off a bicycle, nearly drowning in an Amsterdam canal, and then washing up on Cape Town shores to sober up, Eat, Pray, Love came out, and I was on a plane to India. I know, I wasn't even that original. Julia Roberts just pushed me right over the edge. What can I say? But judge all you like. Sometimes it's the silliest things that open up the world. Maybe even save your life. So, a few flights later, an overnight train journey with live chickens and delicious curries going around for tastings in my carriage, plus a squeezed rickshaw ride, there I am. I'd found myself at the foothills of the Himalayas walking over a giant swing bridge, cautiously, as I follow signs that read, Parmanikitan Ashram. Founded in 1942 by Puyaswami Maharaji, say that five times fast, the ashram attracts anyone and everyone. Every country imaginable is represented here, plus locals wanting to take stock of their lives also show up. And so I went with many years in between, from one pink palace to another. The world here was different to Africa, but in the end, some things are just the same, like the gentle cycle of familiarity and that happy routine that happens all too fast. Mornings start in a very basic room, and I shower in this darkness, washing away all kinds of bullshit. And then long before dawn, I'm in a yoga class with a man who's older than a century, and a whole lot more flexible than I am. After yoga in a sort of semi-darkness, I would prance around these icy floors on the ashram's great halls setting up my meditation mat for class. I would light some candles, and that's when I would think about losing my religion, as if I ever had one. But first a boy must concentrate on eating, and so I do my other seva, which is an act of service that's not about you. Just imagine that. It involves me serving breakfast in the Pink Palace. I eat only once everyone's been fed and smiling. Food at the ashram, besides for the beige breakfast porridge, tends to be yellow from all the turmeric. Eventually you forget that food isn't always sunshine-colored, right about the same time as your hands start to turn yellow too. After food, it's time for class. And first up are the readings from the Bhagavad Gita, a Hindu scripture where there is Prince Arjuna and his guide Lord Krishna, and they are chatting heavily on the battlefield. I sit carefully on a tiny cushion and peel over these old books with drawings of this very theater of war, and I think about chivalry and how to obtain liberation, not dissimilar to our Prince Arjuna. And then some meditation and chanting, 
all in Hindi, are practiced to learn to shut off the senses and go straight to the heart, the head conveniently absent. The hardest part of my day is here. Afternoons are for sleeping, and the mountains all around rise into the blue sky with a way of holding you close. The days don't vary much, and that is the point. Your day without your phone or even a book becomes a simple wave of a rhythm. Your body carries you. Nothing is done with the trickster mind. Eventually my heart starts to open like a flower waiting for a bee to come do its work. My mind is clear, thoughts deviating into any insecurity just washes away into this great river, never to be seen again. I spent several weeks of finding my pleasures in small, almost menial things. My daily work of washing yoga mats and sweeping the floors offered me a deep sense of peace. I run into the ashram's director one morning. I call her Guru Almost G, as she would be the one taking over from the current guru. And I beam as I tell her how content I feel and just how happy I am. She smiles quietly at me. Well, she says, it's easy here at the ashram. What else are you going to do? At first I was stunned. Easy? This? And then she says, when you leave next week and go into the real world, that's when the work starts. Off with my ego's head. So in between all this activity, the hours of meditation and not thinking just of myself, I did find one tiny rebellious act of hedonism. A masala chai. Just outside the gates of the ashram was this tiniest little store where a lovely man behind a stove with cats sleeping all around him was brewing some spicy tea. He loved making it strong and throaty with black tea as the base. Extra cardamom and cinnamon, he'd say, was good for my soul. He'd add in some fresh milk and honey and I'm sure there were secret family recipe spices in there too. It was here I would sneak to every afternoon to come have the smallest shot glass of tea so simple, so nothing, but so everything. Let's pause here and we'll be right back with my friend Holly Fry to give us a little historical context right after the break. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've just been somewhere. What say we go everywhere now? I'd like to tee up my friend Holly to talk with me about tea. Hi, Holly. I feel like I should issue you demerits for that dad joke, but I love you, so I won't. I don't have a dad bod, so I can dad joke. (laughs) It's one or the other, but not both. No. Okay, good to know. I'm Ella's dad, Ella my dog. Yes. 
So I'm a dad, no dad bond. Ella's here today in studio with us. Always. She's the best co-host on the planet. So let me tell you a little something about Ella and tea. Yes. Ella has learned to drink good tea. And I think the antioxidants are good for her. So I'll make her a green tea and she'll lap it up. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, do you research what tea leaves are appropriate and not for dogs, I would presume? Well, my friend Sarah, who you met in Nashville, Mm -hmm. who knows every single thing you could possibly imagine about tea, she told me what tea is good for doggies. Perfect. Yeah. In fact, I make an iced tea for Ella with ice cubes. So you put it the hot tea in ice cube trays and then she sucks it. Oh, refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. And green tea ice cube for Ella. So you have spent significant amounts of time... Drinking tea. Drinking tea. And also in one of the countries most famed for drinking tea, right? Britain. You know we love our tea. We do. Do you know that it's estimated that 165 million cups of tea are consumed in Great Britain every day? I think it's like PG tips, which we call builder's tea in Uh England. I think that's what they're consuming. Probably. It's not always the good stuff, but it's a big part of... That's part of the culture. culture. I mean, if you go to Epcot, which takes bits and pieces of each country and puts them together in a little world, there is a tea shop in Epcot because... No doubt. That's like the representative of, of Great Britain. There's an interesting story about how Great Britain became so tea obsessed and moreover, how they started producing their own tea. And it's not super great <laughs> because it involves some theft. Colonialism. Um, yes. Yeah. So as a quick rundown, so Catherine of Braganza, who was the the Portuguese wife of King Charles II, is often credited with bringing tea to England in the 1600s. There is actually a reference in the diary of Samuel Pepys from two years before she got there of tea. So it's actually a little unclear when tea really hit the British Isles. But the East India Company figures into this story. That was established in 1600. And as tea became more popular in England, that company was like, hmm, we should be monetizing this. (laughs) And so eventually the East India's monopoly on tea trade, particularly to the colonies also, shaped Britain's history. The passing of the Tea Act in 1773 shaped American history because it led to the Boston Tea Party. But during this time, all tea was still coming exclusively from China. And the East India Company was not cool with this because they felt like they were forced into a business relationship that they did not want. They did some dicey things, including starting to export a lot of opium to China. This eventually led to the first opium war, which could be its own whole discussion. But what they eventually started doing is they found a man who was a scientist who studied plants named Robert Fortune. He had gone to China in 1842 on a plant-finding expedition, and he spent a lot of time there. He kind of pushed into the edges of where foreigners were allowed to go, and then he went back to London. And then a few years later, (laughs) the East India Company said, you have to go back, and this time you have to steal tea. And so he went for several, several years He hired locals that were experts in the tea trade and that knew people. At one point, he allegedly disguised himself as a local, which seems weird because he was very tall and very British looking. So I can't imagine how he blended in. But he ended up stealing a variety of seedlings, seeds, etc., shipping them to India where they started production. There's a cool glass case that was invented just for this purpose called a Wardian case. It was invented by Dr. Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward, and it was like 
essentially like a little seedling terrarium where like a seed could be planted and it could live out its life cycle in that little box and they could ship them that way so that when the plants got to where they were going, you could open it up and they would be ready to transplant into soil after a hardening off period for all of my gardeners out in the herd. But Fortune, in the end, when he died, which was in 1880, he had introduced about 280 different plant species to the Western world from China. That is how many plants he yanked out of that country and put elsewhere. But moreover, India's production became so massive that it took market share away from China where tea had originated. And China spent the next 100 years trying to catch back up and become the global leader, which it finally became the largest exporter of tea again in the 1950s. It's an interesting story of how this beautiful plant that we, you know, have come to associate with so many daily rituals, but there is also this underbelly to the story that China literally was robbed of its tea culture so that the rest of us could have whatever we wanted whenever we wanted it. But that's the beauty of tea, right? So Sarah and I went to Thailand, Vietnam, and we discovered these ancient tea trees that they say are thousands of years old and carry the wisdom of thousands of years. And you know, from the tea party you and I went to with Sarah in Nashville, she talked about the wisdom of tea and the beauty of tea and the togetherness of tea and how the Moroccan culture has spread it in a way that it's all day that you can drink this beautiful tea. I mean, I'm a big fan of beverages all day long, so... I've seen you with a beverage. Do you ever see me without some sort of beverage in my hand? Never. Coffee, tea, I've seen you take a beverage to the restaurant. Cocktail. You're like, I'm not going to leave my cocktail here at the bar. I'm just going to take it with me. (laughs) I do usually have a beverage with me even when I shower. That I know about, I will put coffee in a travel mug first thing in the morning so I can take it in the shower. So I'm a big fan of this idea of drinking tea all day. So the other thing that... I would love to talk about when it comes to tea is Americans call red tea black tea. So what you know, Lipton tea is actually red tea because black tea is fermented tea called pu'er. And it's from an area in China called Lijiang, which is in fact where the tea trade and where the tea caravan started. So tea moved first east into China south into Thailand, Myanmar, Vietnam, and Cambodia, and eventually made its way to Taiwan, where it was totally changed. And then the Japanese took tea and refined it into the most beautiful, incredible, artful thing, whereas the rest of tea became much more commercial. The Japanese took tea into a high art of tea. So there's all these incredible misnomers. And when you travel and you drink tea and you order tea and you start learning this stuff, it's such a beautiful way into a local culture. Like South Africans drink rooibos tea, which is actually a herb. South America has no tea. Mate is not a tea, it's a herb. Right. And a delicious one at that. And a delicious one. I love mate. Exactly. Um, Europe has very little tea. It's mostly tisane. Except for Portugal. They have the Azores, which is the only coffee growing area and tea growing area in all of Europe. But now with global warming, the real thing, global warming, all these regions are changing. So they used to be like the coffee and tea belt. All that is changing because you coffee, for instance, needs higher and higher elevation right. to grow properly. So all these coffee plantations are going up and up the mountains, like in Colombia. And tea needs 
proper drainage. And because of global warming and all this stuff changing, there isn't enough drainage now for these tea regions, so they're changing. And for instance, China now has um, like a completely new region of tea in the north. Yeah. As someone that lives in Georgia, peaches don't grow there very well anymore. Right. <laughs> global warming. Because it's too hot. Right. Uh, yeah. They've shifted up north into the Carolinas. That's oh, where wow. peaches do much better now. Similarly, we have picked up some of the citrus trade from Florida. So should I call you the Georgia orange now, opposed sure. to my Georgia peach? If that feels correct to you, feels go, great. go crazy. <laughs> no, wait, what about the Georgia tangerine? All right. All right. All right. Uh, yeah, it fascinates me to think about. There was also in um, in Robert Fortune's travels through China, he did discover that early on the Chinese realized that English people were not all that bright and they were actually coloring some of their teas to make them a more uniform color. As a consequence, they were adding an awful lot of toxicity to it. But it was one of those things where they were like, English people don't really understand this. We'll just make it pretty for them and they'll keep drinking it. Wow. Um, So again, it's one of those things where the nomenclature is not universal because it's been shifted in all of these export and then people adopting it in their own way. But also from the beginning, China kind of realized other people don't get this, but it is our main export. So we will cater to them in whatever way seems to work. I love talking about tea with pretty much everyone because tea is such a beautiful part of my life and it always has been. But I love the idea that you can travel and find small ways of connecting with people on the road with tea. And something about travel and it's hard to get tea and coffee done in the right way. I always travel with a bag of tea and a bag of coffee with a grinder and a whole setup (laughs) so that like wherever I'm traveling in the world, I can make a cup of tea that's real and amazing. Your bag is filled with Star Wars things. Like I know that you're not traveling with tea paraphernalia. I'm I'm not traveling with tea paraphernalia. But you could. I think I'm too lazy. Also, when it comes to coffee, at the end of the day... I've seen what you drink. I'm a junkie, not a connoisseur, right? Like I'll take it any way I can get it. And I'm just (laughs) not that picky about it. Put it in my anus. I like it. No. I mean, I love a good cup of coffee, but if it's not so good, I'll still drink it because I need the... I've seen you dump bad coffee when I give you better coffee, which I appreciate. But if I didn't come along with the better coffee... I would have drunk the mediocre coffee happily. You say mediocre, but I would downgrade that. You know, if it's pencil shavings soaked in water, I might not drink it, but that's maybe How would you know the difference? I've seen you consume. I do. I like a lot of coffee. Speaking of which, I think it's time we go have a cup. That sounds grand. You can have tea. I will. Okay, great. Thanks for hanging with me today. Again, it's always like a treat for me. I feel like a spoiled child. Great. I'll ring a bell. This is a great moment for us to travel to advertising land. And we'll be right back with Everywhere. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she? as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome once again to Everywhere. Let's hop back to it. Welcome back. I'm with my best friend, Sarah Scarborough, tea huntress and founder of Firepot Teas. We recently went to Thailand and Vietnam to find thousand-year-old tea trees. Let's talk about that. It's interesting, wherever you go in the world, they have tea, and it always looks different and tastes different in whichever culture that you're in. But the one common thread that runs throughout the world of tea is that tea is always about connecting with other people and connecting with yourself and just taking a minute to slow down and connect with people. So coffee, in many ways, is to alert, and tea is the opposite. It's to slow down. Give me a little thought about that. Well, tea is interesting. So it does have caffeine. So there is an alert state associated with it, but it's also, so it has an amino acid called L-theanine in it. And L-theanine is what people take to sleep and to relax. It increases the alpha waves in your brain. So the combination of the L-theanine and the caffeine gives you that zen mind, that calm, alert focus. And another thing that's interesting chemically that's in tea is the catechins, which are the antioxidants that tea is so famous for. What they do is they bind to the caffeine, and so they slow down the release of caffeine in your body. So whereas coffee releases in your body over the course of two or three hours, tea can take up to 20 hours to release throughout your body. So you have this calm, alert, focused, zen mind for an extended period of time which is a completely different feeling than when you have coffee because it's an immediate up and then down. I want you to talk to me a little bit about how tea started and how tea traveled and how tea is such a beautiful uh, metaphor for travel. Right, right. Well, tea is the ultimate voyager, I think. And this is something that a lot of people don't know, but thousands and thousands of years ago, there were people in Yunnan, China, where tea is born, where it's from, And they revere these old tea trees like gods and they worship them and they look at them as their spiritual guide and they drink these leaves and it gives them health and spirituality and it was their original medicine too. So in that lineage of tea, tea is revered as something holy and something sacred. And in the British lineage, which is more what we're familiar with in the West, is more about commerce and it's more about yield and it's the entire system was built on business. So the East India Trading Company was built because of the tea trade. They're drinking tea in a much different way as a beverage and still they're using it though as a time to connect with other people. So these two ways of looking at tea and the types of tea that are being drunk in these two lineages are completely different. And I think that, you know, wherever you go in the world, you can find tea and It always is a manifestation of the culture that you're in. So it can be frothed matcha at a temple in Japan that you're drinking in silence. And it can be a spicy, sweet chai at the stall in Calcutta on the side of the road where people are chatting and eating samosas with it. And it can be a sweet tea on a front porch in Nashville. And still, though, connecting, spending time with each other. It could be a beautiful oolong at a tea house in Taiwan. It could be tea turek in Malaysia. Every culture has 
a different tea. And so in a way, you can really travel the entire world just by having cups of tea. And it's a great way to travel around the world to tap into the tea culture because that cup of tea will tell you everything about the culture that you're in. So about the agriculture, about the palate of the people, about what's important to them, the way that they connect with each other. For example, Japanese are known for loving the umami, the savory. And so the tea from there is often very savory and almost oily. And it's taken meditatively often, the matcha and the whole tea ceremony comes from there. The Germans are known for loving the bitter taste. And so in the tea world, Germans are famous for loving a first flush Darjeeling that's really brisk and has those bright kind of strong notes. In the United States, we're known for loving things that are a little bit more sweet. So our teas are generally more malty. You know, we like to put sugar and milk in our teas. So it's a great way of understanding a culture. Tell me a little bit about how tea traveled from. Tell me where it came from and how it traveled. So tea was born in Yunnan province, China, probably was being drunk and worshipped there for thousands of years before discovery, but discovery was 2737 BC, legendarily by the herbalist Emperor Shen Neng, and he, apparently a leaf dropped from the tree into his bowl of hot water, and he was so astounded by the health benefits and the way that this plant made him feel that he spread the use of tea to all his people all around China. And so for thousands of years, tea was being consumed in China. And then it was the Zen Buddhist monks that were sent from Japan to China to learn about and bring culture back to Japan. And instead they brought back tea, which I think is sort of the same thing. So they discovered tea and they fell in love with it for the Zen mind that it gave them. And they brought tea back to Japan, took it to their temples and cultivated it. And there's a saying that there would be no tea without Zen and there would be no Zen without tea because they are one and the same. And so from there, it continued to spread through Asia. And then it was on the trading routes that went west into Europe, on the Silk Route, on the Tea Horse Road, which was part of the old Silk Route. And these trading caravans would take tea from Asia and then across the deserts. So like Moroccan mint tea was because the nomadic tribes moved westward and they would pick these potent herbs, so artemisia and mint and sage from the desert, and then they would blend it with green tea from China and they would add sugar that was also being traded on the route. And then from there, it first came to Europe in the dowry of Catherine de Braganza and she was a Portuguese royalty. So that's what we look at for the first time that it made its way to Europe. I think she moved to the Netherlands. And then that's when the British started to set up tea plantations in their colony of India. And then along this, around the same time, they discovered that tea was also indigenous to Assam in India. So they had indigenous plants, but they also had stolen plants from China. And then they began to cultivate black tea in India And then they started the East India Trading Company, and that was the genesis of the opium wars because there was the trade for opium, silver, and tea going on. And it was all about the British not wanting to be reliant on the Chinese monopoly of the tea trade. So that's how it made its way to Europe. And then if we continue the story of tea, 
it went from Europe with the colonists into America. So tea then made its way, of course, into society. And at the St. Louis World Fair in 1904, tea was introduced in both tea bag form and an iced tea form. So that's when history notes the first tea bags and the first iced tea. And that's also really interesting because if you think of the way that we consume historically tea in this country, it's all, 99% of it is iced tea and tea bags. And everything that goes in iced tea or tea bags is the lowest grade black tea that's grown, you know, maybe in Argentina, sometimes India. And that's so completely different than the birthplace of tea where they're taking care of these tea trees for generations and they're birthing babies underneath these trees and they're having weddings around these trees and the trees are part of their family and their community. And um, black tea is great. Breakfast tea is great. Chai is great. Darjeeling is amazing. It's one of my favorite teas. And I love those traditions of tea. And, you know, what we do is we work a lot through fair trade and through organic production and partnerships at Origin to be able to affect positive change in the origins where the British set up the industry in such a way that it has led to slavery and sex trafficking and lots of pesticide use. I mean, that was the reason that I started the company 18 years ago was to affect positive change, to connect tea lovers with tea growers, to improve the lives of both. And if you just only drink black tea, you're really missing out on so much of the joy of tea. There's another category of teas that we pour tea ceremony with that are called living teas. And there's a number of different criteria that they have to have to be called living teas. For example, they come from seed, not cuttings. But when you sit around and drink these teas, you can have a magical experience and every tea affects you in a different way. So there's one tea that I love to drink and every time I drink it in ceremony, I have visions, like real clarity on my life and my true nature and who I am and tea taken in this way is in the category of plants called entheogens, which are God plants. The entheogens are like ayahuasca, marijuana, peyote, all the different plants that give people insight and spiritual clarity. And tea is also in this family. It's just a lot more subtle than, you know, ayahuasca, for example. (laughs) You know, tea is magic that way. It really is. And I think that's what I love to share with people is that 99% of what is available in the world of tea in this country is black tea. But there's this whole other world of tea out there and it's about sitting with people and having time in a session and it's about the vitality of this leaf and it's the way it makes you feel and the way it opens up your heart and the way it gives you clarity and the way that you can connect with people over it. You know, there's such a big world out there. There's so much more. Thank you, Sarah. Well, I had a good time. I hope you did too. If you'd like to reach us, go to Everywhere Podcast on Instagram, Everywhere Pod on Twitter, or the website, everywherepodcast.com. I'm Daniel Scheffler, signing off. I'll be seeing you everywhere.
every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 